So I begin with the question, what is the one regret you want to avoid at the end of your life? Perhaps you're asking, did I, or you will ask when you're at the very end, on your deathbed perhaps, did I work hard enough? Uh, my kids, and they're allowed to say this, they're 7 and 10, and they complain about school. That's their version of working hard. And say, I've been going to school for most of my life. <laughs> and I think about it, it's like, you're right, because you're only 7 and 10, <laughs> right? And maybe their regret would be, I work too hard. I, I need to. And, and so on the flip side, did I play hard enough? Did I stop to smell the roses and just enjoy all the pleasantries that this life has to offer? Did I achieve enough? Did I climb high enough, and was I recognized enough? And for some of us still, did I, did I love enough? Did I slow down and prioritize relationships and people? Now, can you imagine life with no regrets? Is that even possible? Can your mind even try to begin to wrap itself around that possible reality, a life of no regrets? But the truth is that when God created this universe and this earth in specific and placed Adam and Eve and, and man on this earth, it was pristine, it was untouched, untainted, no sin, perfect relationship with God and with one another, Adam and Eve were on the trajectory to live a life of no regrets. That was God's original intention, to be able to live life actually ceaselessly, the first plan of God was for them to have an eternal life, never to face death, and to have no regrets. And so for you and me, because we live in such a broken world, you look at the headlines. Uh, just yesterday, I was catching up on the natural disaster that's happening in Hawaii, and then the lava that is flowing onto towns and, and, and the volcano that is erupting. And you think of the suffering, the, the pain, and also our own mistakes, can you imagine life with no regrets? It seems very difficult to. But what I want to suggest to you today is that Paul, he actually lived that life. He actually lived that life of no regrets. Now, no regrets doesn't mean no mistakes, because even Paul made mistakes. But there came a point in Paul's life, a clear division, when he met Christ on that road to Damascus, and Jesus confronted him. He said, Paul, Paul, why do you persecute me? And Paul placed his faith in Jesus as his Messiah. And for the forgiveness of his sins, his life completely turned around. And even still, as a Christ follower, he still made mistakes. He still had missteps and mishaps. But overall, he still lived a life of no regrets. So no regrets doesn't mean that you don't make mistakes. But no regrets means that at the very end, when you're at the end, whether on your deathbed or Christ comes before death and calls you home, when you're there at the end, it's not that you haven't made mistakes, but that you know confidently, you have a peace that your life has been redeemed. That's what it means for the Christ follower to live with no regrets. And Paul lived that life. And in fact, long before his end, day to day, from town to town, from ship journey to ship journey, he lived with a clear purpose that guided him day to day that led to overall a life, what I can confidently say, he would say, I lived a life with no regrets. Now here's the encouragement, you and I too, you and me, you and I, we can live that same life of no regrets that Paul did. We, tr we truly can. And we can, now as we ask the second big question today, how do I live with that no, 
uh, that life with no regrets. We can experience that same life with no regrets if we first personalize Paul's pains. Paul took great pains because of his priorities in life. He took great pains. He had certain priorities. He took great pains to fulfill those priorities. And if we could learn of what those pains are and personalize them for ourselves. And second, to mimic Paul's planning. And what do I mean by that? Something very practical and everyday, just decision-making and setting a course and making a schedule. Paul, he had a certain way to plan how he lived out his life. So let's dive into the text just to bring us up to speed and, and to place some context. Here is a map of the Mediterranean. And so we have Italy there, the famous boot. And so hopefully that can give you some reference point. And a few weeks ago, we saw Paul in Athens. It's still the same Athens as modern Greece. So if you have an idea of Mediterranean geography, there's Athens. And last week, we saw him go to Corinth, which is still in, uh, if I'm not mistaken, the area of modern Greece, not too far from Athens. And so there he is in Corinth. And in Corinth, if you recall, he got there and God gave him a promise. God said, do not be afraid, Paul. And so that's the Lord saying, Paul, I see your heart. Even though you're strong on the outside, even though you are an an apostle of the church, and you're doing all this great work, don't fear. and, And you can be honest with me. I see the fear in your heart. And he promises, Paul, do not be afraid. No one will harm you or attack you. And so we see Paul having a year and a half at least, a year and a half, a year and six months of peace and freedom to preach the gospel. And and so he camps out for a year and a half in Corinth. And then last week we saw that that promise, it seems like it expired. It was just a temporary promise. And the Jews made a united attack on Paul. And so from Corinth, we're going to see that he stays a little, uh, Scripture describes as, Uh, Many days longer, he stayed there, but then he moves on to Kenkre, where we saw him today, if you were listening while the scripture was being read, where he cut his hair. We'll explain that. And then from Kenkre, he sails across. He catches a ship, and he sails across to Ephesus, modern-day Turkey. And then his long-term goal, though, is to eventually get back to Israel, and the ship that he's on takes him to Caesarea. And I didn't include an arrow here, but if you just follow that white arrow up, from Caesarea, he, his main goal is to get back to Antioch, his sending church, his second home base. His first home base is the church in Jerusalem, as we'll see, and his second home base, Antioch. And so we pick up uh, Luke's narrative, and we see Paul's pains. He takes great pains for certain priorities. And so in verse 18, after this, we need to pay attention to what is this. This is the altercation. This is after a year and a half of peace and freedom to preach the gospel confidently and to see fruit of the gospel. Now, remember before that, the reason why Paul was given a promise by God is because his own flesh and blood, his people that he dearly loved, his beloved Jewish people reviled him. And he got to a snapping point. Paul himself, the super giant apostle of the church, of the early church, the one who wrote approximately half of the New Testament. He had a breaking point. And in his heart, he gave up on his own flesh and blood. They reviled him, and so he blurted out, your blood be upon your own heads. I am innocent. Now I'm going to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And then a year and a half later, 
the Jews make a united attack, and there's an altercation, and even the Jewish uh, leader of the synagogue gets beat up as a result of how it all unfolded. And so this is what uh, Luke means after this. Now, if you were Paul, put yourself in his shoes. A year and a half spent. First, when that year and a half started, you had written off the people that you loved. And you even had a moment of weakness where you almost even cursed them. But he sticks around a year and a half later. And even after this altercation, he stayed many days longer. Paul could have easily just said, okay, I was patient enough, a year and a half. Now this is it. This is the last straw. And he could have just left them. But Luke describes, and what we're to understand, this saying stayed many days longer. And during that time, it was a sort of a saying that could mean even months. He still many, stayed many months longer. And so Paul stayed. And I want you to notice, and Luke records this specific detail, at Cancre, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. All the commentators that I've read, they agree that Paul was under a Nazarite vow. That was a Jewish vow in the Jewish law. And what it involved, basically, if you think of Samson from the Old Testament, he was under a Nazarite vow. It involved growing your hair out as long as possible, never cutting it, just letting it grow as long as it can, and abstaining from alcohol. And we don't know the reason why, the specific reason why uh, Paul... Uh, the concrete reason why Paul would have gone under this vow. But here's the implication. Here's what I think we can confidently conclude. During that year and a half, even though he had that breaking point and said, your blood be upon your own hands, and in his heart it seems like he had written off the ones that he had loved so dearly and he had almost in a sense given up on continuing to share the gospel with this people, he was still involved in Jewish traditions and we can conclude, based on other things that he writes in other letters, to the Jew he became a Jew. The Jews would have noticed that Paul was growing his hair. The Jews would have noticed that Paul was under this Nazarite vow. See, Paul's intention was never to show, his message to the Jews was an, I reject the law, I reject Moses, I reject everything of your tradition. No, what he was trying to show them and prove them was that Jesus is the fulfillment of your tradition. Jesus is the fulfillment of your law and my law. And so what we can conclude confidently here is, even as his priority had shifted to taking the gospel to non-Jews, to the Gentiles, he was still laboring to connect with his flesh and blood. Let me bring that to our everyday. Is there someone in your heart, you've had a moment, whether in the past or recently, you gave up on them in your heart? You've been praying for them for so long. You've even cried tears, maybe even in front of them or in secret, in your secret times with God. But because of their stubbornness, you've even had moments where you said, God, fine. They want to go to hell. Let them go to hell. That's in, in essence what Paul was saying in, the, in last week's verse. And yet we see here Paul, even though he said that on the surface, he had a moment of weakness, one of those moments where he can't squeeze the toothpaste back into the tube. It's already been squeezed out. He, he kind of said it, but we see him continuing to reach out to those in a moment of weakness he had written off. And this Jewish vow demonstrates that. 
And we see it further. Paul's pains. Verse 19, and they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. This is Paul and, sorry, Silas and Timothy. But he himself went, made a beeline right into the synagogue. See, where earlier he said, I'm just going to go to the Gentiles from now on. This verse proves that it was a moment of weakness for Paul. And he continued to reach out to his beloved flesh and blood, his people, and he reasoned with the Jews. That's a taking of his time to try to explain and sit down and open up the scriptures. A patient reasoning. Now here we see an important doctrine. And I have no doubt that even Paul's motivation, his pains to keep belaboring, to pray for and to reach out to those he loves and who don't trust Jesus yet, it was motivated by what Paul was living out himself, but it comes from the Lord himself, this wonderful theology, this wonderful doctrine of Jesus' incarnation. Incarnation means that basically Jesus came into the flesh. And a simple definition of the doctrine of incarnation is here. Jesus Christ was fully God. He left the glories in heaven, his throne in heaven, and he came to this earth in flesh, became fully man in one person, and Jesus will be so forever. He'll be fully God and fully man forever. Now let me try to liken it to this. Right now, as the weather has been warming up, for some reason I think the ants between the walls and our home are are coming more alive as well and coming from dormancy. And, and in our bathroom, from time to time, we see about two or three black ants crawling around. And for me, I'm confessing here, I have no sympathy, I have no mercy on those ants, and I kill them right away, unless I have the time. Sometimes I let them live because I want to see if they'll go back to the hole that they're coming from so that when I find that hole, I'm going to douse it with some you know, ant spray or whatever it is so that they, they don't come into our bathroom ever again, right? Now, the doctrine of incarnation and lightheartedness and all seriousness mashed together is, is Jesus becoming an ant, so to speak. Would you be willing to become an ant to save ants? I wouldn't. <laughs> but Jesus, now, in, in literal, real terms, he became human. And, and he met us where we were at. He entered our life in all its brokenness. And Paul, he says in another letter, to the Jews I became a Jew, to the Gentiles a Gentile, to the Greeks the Greeks, etc., etc. That's, that's the application of the doctrine of incarnation, that you're willing to step into that context. Remind me of another story this week, if you've seen the movie way back, Schindler's List, and the, one of the main characters there, Schindler, the story starts out, he is just a selfish opportunist, and basically he owns a factory, and he was trying to recruit more Jews because they were cheaper, cheaper labor, and he could increase his bottom line, but the movie uh, recounts or tells the story of how his heart began to change toward them, and incidentally, as he recruited more and hired more Jews for his factory for him to become richer because they were cheaper labor, more Jews were being saved during World War II. This is during, set in Nazi, the Nazi regime during World War II. 
Now, at the end, obviously, the Allies win, and Schindler is also on the war criminal list, and he has to flee. But as he is fleeing at the end, as he is about to depart the factory, all the Jews come together, and they present him with a ring that they forged for him. And that picture there that you see on the screen is them presenting the ring, and there's an inscription inside. It says, he who saves one life saves the world. And he begins to have a meltdown. And he looks at his pin. He says, this was made of gold. This could have saved one more, one more. I could have saved one more. He begins to look at all his material possessions that he could have exchanged and, and Jews could have worked on instead. And, and, and he's saying, I could have saved one more. And he just absolutely melts and, and just breaks down, becomes a mess. Now, I could easily say this is the burden that a Christ follower should have as well. These, this is the kind of pains that Paul had. If I could just save one more. But I want to first just throw out this bit of a trick question. Is this burden fitting for the Christ follower? We'll, we'll answer that towards the end. It's a bit of a trick question. But nevertheless, until we get to that question, let me leave, you, leave, leave with you these so practical consideration questions. Whom are you taking pains to pray for right now? Maybe there's a brother in Christ, a sister in Christ, or someone who's outside of the family of Christ, and, and you're just praying for them. Whose salvation specifically are you taking pains to pray for? Whom are you taking pains to overflow grace toward? Someone at work, someone at school, in your family? Because we all have... God has given us circles of influence where we're meant to extend his grace, his love. And God allows people to cross our paths. And we need to be able to answer these questions and identify people that are in our circles of influence that we're taking great pains and personalizing Paul's pains. Well, let's move on. We also see Paul, that he had a certain way of planning. Remember, the big picture question is here, how do you live a life of no regrets? We want to personalize Paul's pains. If we, if we live with that kind of priority to take on pains of the gospel, that will set us on a trajectory to get to the end, to live life, to be able to live a life and look back and have no regrets. But also we need to plan a certain way. Now this is Paul in Ephesus, and we continue the narrative, verse 20. When they asked him, the Ephesian Christians who had converted and, and come to Christ. Now remember, these are Jews. These are Jews because he went to the synagogue first. And they're acknowledging Jesus as their Messiah. They asked him to stay for a longer period, and he declined. So dry, so just simple, short, sorry, got to go. Now, commentators explain, most likely, and they, all the commentators I've read agree, they all say the same thing. It was actually a very practical decision. That's why it was so easy, just sorry, very dry. He declined. Because back then, Transportation wasn't like the TTC where you have a bus or a train coming every 10 minutes. There wasn't a schedule that you could depend on. For Paul to have in his mind, he had a greater priority. I want to get back to Israel. And specifically, I want to get back to Antioch. Because that was his, his heartfelt home base. He wanted to report back to them, spend time with them, be refreshed, and then go on another leg. And so for ships at that time, it was almost serendipitous. You'd go to the dock day by day, and if there was a ship there, you'd ask the captain, where are you headed? 
And if, by chance, there was a ship headed gen in his general direction, he would take it. Now, remember, his ultimate goal was to get to Antioch. And if you recall from the map, that's north Israel. But he ended up first getting, uh, landing at Caesarea, which is at the complete bottom, the south of Israel. And so in Paul's mind, he's probably thinking, if I don't catch this ship, who knows when another ship is going to come that's going to take me even in the right direction. It might be months before. And his priority was to get to there, so I'll get to Caesarea, and you know what? It works out. I'll hit Jerusalem on the way, say hi to the other apostles, Peter, James, and John, etc., and then I'll travel by land to get up to Antioch. And so what I want you to see here, it was a very practical decision. It's a very common sense decision. He had an order of priorities. Now remember the Ephesians, in his heart, when we look at his letter to the Ephesians, he loved the Ephesians. And for, imagine Paul, for a year and a half, he was so discouraged by his fellow Jews reviling him and rejecting the gospel. But here in Ephesus, they respond right away. I'm sure in his heart there was something that wanted to stay because there was something good going on here, but he had greater priorities. And so it was a very practical decision. But now look, we see greater insight in how he plans, how he's making his decisions day by day. Verse 21, but on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you. His heart was to return. That was his heart's desire. Because I imagine putting myself in Paul's shoes. God's doing something good here. This is so refreshing to see my fellow flesh and blood, my Jewish family, receiving Jesus as the Messiah. And I can imagine him wanting to stay there longer. And so here's his heart. I will return to you. I want to return to you if God wills. He punctuates if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. Now I hope for the Christ follower here that this reminds you of another prayer pattern that we see. That you've perhaps seen before. And it's our Lord's most intimate, intense, soul-bearing moment of prayer. Jesus' Gethsemane prayer. The night before he's crucified, anxiety to the point of hematidosis, which is just the medical term for a certain level of stress that your sweat glands start bursting and little beads of blood come out. And this is his prayer. He said, Abba, Father, which we can rightfully translate dad, father, daddy, father, both intimacy and respect. All things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. That's him expressing his desire, his human desire. If possible, I don't want to have to go through this crucifixion. I don't want to have to suffer on the cross for all the sins of the world. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Proverbs 16.9, and this is just one spot in the Bible, but scripture from Genesis to Revelation, we see this sort of thinking for God followers, Christ followers, where we're, we have the freedom to be honest about our heart's desire, our human desire, but then the Christ follower sincerely punctuates that prayer with, but not my will, but yours be done, what God wills. And packed into that is the heart, change my heart, God, to line up with your will. And so even Proverbs 16, 9, one of my life verses, I have a list of life verses, 
um, that I go to. And, and this is one that we make our plans, but the Lord directs our steps. The same idea. So consider this thought. When you surrender your will to God, you can't lose. When you sincerely take the time to pray, here's what I'm thinking, God. Here's what my common sense and practical decision-making lines up. But let your will be done. And I submit it to you. You can't lose. He causes everything. Our triumphs and our tribulations. Our master strokes and our missteps. Everything. For the good of those who love him and are called according to his eternal purpose. Christ follower, you can be confident. Take the brain. Take your desires and emotions all within, of course, testing with Scripture and the guardrails of Scripture. But take all that. Be real. Be human. Bring that all before God and lay it down. Surrender it. And surrendering means being open to saying, God, if my desires are offline or if I'm being tempted towards sin, please point that out in me and let your will be done. That's the joy and freedom that Christ followers have. So third and final big question today, how do I really live with no regrets then? I could stop here and say, all right, let's get pumped up as Christians, Christ followers. Let's personalize Paul's pains. Let's muster up some more willpower, and, and let's, you know, one more save. If I could just save one more, and let's get more wise and learn to uh, prioritize and make checklists and, and become more logistically savvy and, and consider all the details and plan well and use our common sense and then tack on there if God wills. No, no, that, that would be the wrong message. I would be encouraging you to just continue to live by works, by your strength alone. So how do I really live with no regrets? We have to experience Paul's passion as well. There was an underlying reason, motive, inspiration that Paul, even in his weakness, even when he had weak, snapping moments, that was carrying him, that was strengthening him. And we see this in the last two verses. And so we see Paul's passion. We need to experience the same passion. Verse 22, his, his long-term, his uh, big priority, at, this, at least in this little section of his life, um, was to get to Antioch and to give report and to be encouraged to just be reunited with his brethren there. And so we know the ship first took him to Caesarea south, and when he had landed there, he went up and greeted the church. Now here commentators agree that the church here in Wides went up is because from Caesarea he went up to Jerusalem. And usually when they're talking about the church, it's referring to the Jerusalem church. And so he went up to the Jerusalem church, and there are Peter, Apostle, uh, uh, John, James, the other apostles, and so forth. And here the word greeted, it's a beautiful word in the original language. It, it doesn't just mean, hey, what's up? It, it means opening up your arms, just opening up your heart and welcoming family back home, giving them a warm embrace. And so they greeted Paul. Imagine how loved he felt. How refreshed as he shared his stories. I imagine he had an honest moment with the other apostles there. You know, I snapped. I even said a curse to, to our fellow Jews. And I want to just give up. I want to give in. In fact, that's what I said and prayed. I imagine him just sharing transparently like that and being encouraged. And then he went down to Antioch and here the, 
reason why if you're thinking kind of logically, how come it's up to Jerusalem, but Antioch's north geographically of Jerusalem, why is it down to Antioch? Because just sort of um, in terms of status, the, the Jerusalem church was considered um, uh, primary during the, the, that time and the whole church of Christ. But nevertheless, Antioch, his, his second home, and probably in Paul's heart, his real home, his sending family, and he spends time there. And then after that, he starts his third journey, his third leg. And so he goes from one place to the next, to the region of Galatia and Frisia, all the places that he had planted, the Lord had used them to plant a Jesus-believing, a gospel-centered congregation, and strengthening all the disciples. What was Paul's passion? To strengthen the church. And strengthen here means to make firm a certain knowledge. That's what the strengthening here means. To, To make concrete, to cement a certain knowledge. What was the knowledge? It was all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus that he came to die on the cross. He fulfilled the law. He took our place. He died to lay down uh, his life so he could build up his church. Paul would say to the church, you are the bride of Christ. You are Jesus' beloved. Let that completely reorder your identity, your purpose, the way you um, steward your resources, everything. Paul's passion was the church, meaning Paul's passion was Jesus' passion. That's why Paul could persevere. That's why Paul could go on and on and on through whatever triumph and tribulation, through whatever master stroke or misstep. It's because what was undergirding him was not his own passion, but it was Jesus' passion. Jesus made his passion for the church clear. Matthew 16, 18, And I tell you, you are Peter. This is him speaking to Peter at the time. And on this rock, But the focus is this, Jesus, I will build my church. Jesus will build his church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And so I asked you earlier, this idea of, I could have saved one more. Is this burden fitting for the Christ follower? Yes and no. Yes and no. As you, people who get to know me, you'll know that's one of my favorite answers. My family is annoyed by that question, or by that answer. Yes and no. Just say yes or no, not yes and no. And it's yes and no because you can't save the person that is stubbornly rejecting the gospel. You can't. And if you cross a line, a wrong line, where you actually think and feel that you can be their savior, it's going to depress you. It, it's going to destroy your heart. It's going to ruin you. Trust me, I've been there. But when we stay in light just at the feet of Jesus and we're in touch with his burden, it's his church. He's the one and his spirit is the one that will work in that person's heart that you're praying for, whose salvation you're praying for, or or they're going through something and, and you're hoping that they'll see life through a gospel perspective and shed their old perspective. If you, as you stay at the feet of Jesus, we, we're meant to still have enough burden to keep reaching out. But to stay far from that, 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 that dangerous boundary, 
where you cross over and think that you're the one who can actually save them. It's Jesus' passion that needs to be our passion. Just another reference that's so beautiful, Ephesians 5. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Gave himself up for her. See, Paul's passion was Jesus' passion. And it was Jesus' passion for his church that he's building that gave him the energy, that gave him the day-to-day strength, especially when he was low, to keep moving forward. So I want to end by asking, what's, what's your passion? What's your passion? When you get to the end of your life, will you be able to say with Paul and, and the other true saints, I have no regrets doesn't mean that I haven't made any mistakes or had any missteps. But overall, I live for the passion of Christ and by the passion of Christ. So I want to leave you with just one sort of big practical action step. I hope and pray that as Jesus' passion and his grace continue to do work from inside out in your own heart, that your passion will become Jesus' passion. Even those days when you feel down, when, when you don't feel like moving forward, you're going to experience a supernatural wind. You're going to experience a supernatural strength, a grace that lifts you up because it's Jesus himself and his spirit. What does that look like practically and concretely? Be and build Christ's church. Be and build Christ's church. Let that be your greatest overarching priority in life, the pains that you take. But we live that out by living to first preserve. Preserve. Jesus calls us to be his salt and light, to preserve the church, to to be salt that preserves through our integrity and goodness. Not just to be moral and good enough and good people, but because the Spirit is working in us and we know the light of Christ. And you're doing an act of when you are at home, in your relationships, the way you argue, the way you relate to one another, the way you joke when you're at work and how you deal with your coworkers, on and every area of life, you can preserve this world until that time when Christ says, okay, end of time, through your integrity and goodness that's, that's fueled by the gospel. For some of you, adventure. Take a risk. Be and build the church by adventuring, taking risks by faith in step with the Spirit. Wherever you work, whether at, in the marketplace or your homemaking or your student, have the mentality to be and build Christ Church by living to redeem work and culture by your approach, realizing it's all for the glory of God. And also be and build Christ Church by extending Christ's love through mercy and justice. Jesus is passionately building his church. We see Paul, Luke chronicling Paul continuing in that because of Jesus' passion, becoming his passion. And I hope it can be your passion. Let's pray.